0: One of the things I'd like to say is uh, everything I ever needed to know to work at Ross Video I learned in kindergarten, you know, to treat the other person nicely, to share, to not raise your voice, don't run with scissors, I don't know, all those sorts of things. And I think for the most part, the values that we put in the code of ethics are universal.
1: Hello and welcome to the DPP podcast, your regular dose of hobnobbing discussions, interviews, musings and much more with technology and business leaders in the media and entertainment industry. And of course, its ecosystem and orbit of suppliers and innovative technology partners. And that voice you just heard was Ross Video CEO David Ross, who we will hear much more from very shortly. I'm Edward Qualtro, Editorial Director at the DPP, and I am pleased to introduce to you an interview with Ross Video CEO David Ross. David is speaking with DPP CEO Mark Harrison, discussing the formation of the company, the Ross Code of Ethics, half a century of growth, succession planning, the reasoning for an upcoming IPO, and plenty of other topics, so without further delay, here is that discussion with a little preamble from Mark about why he was so keen to have David Ross as a guest on the podcast.
2: Now, the cynics among you may have taken one look at the DPP doing a full-length one-on-one interview with the CEO of Ross Video and thought, I wonder how much Ross paid for that? After all, that's kind of how the world works now, right? Well, wrong, actually. The reason we have an interview with David Ross is that I reached out and asked for one. Why? I'll tell you. Ross Video, you see, is a really unusual company. It's eponymous for a start. There aren't many family businesses in our sector. John Ross started it back in 1975, and now his son David is in charge. That's just two bosses in nearly 50 years. Not only that, the company has never had external investment, and it's still based out of their hometown, the little town of Iroquois in Canada. The company has grown consistently and made numerous acquisitions, but for all that growth and change, it always comes out highly when Devoncroft report on the most loved vendors among customers. You see, we talk a lot nowadays about leadership and culture, so it seemed a good time to me to find out about the leadership and culture of one of our industry's most stable, successful, popular but unusual companies. That's why I contacted David. When you hear our chat, I think you'll be pleased I did. And hey, all his great insight and advice won't have cost you a penny either. Welcome, David. Thank you very much for joining the DPP podcast. We're delighted to have you. Probably pretty much everybody in the media industry has at least heard of Ross video or seen its name on big stands at trade shows. But for those that don't know the company well, just give us the the, the quick history of, of of how the business came about. Because it all started, I believe, in nineteen seventy five with
0: a with a small aeroplane. Yes, it, it actually started in uh, nineteen you could say it started in nineteen seventy three when my father decided he was gonna quit his job. He uh he had a, uh, a friend named Jim Leach, and a lot of people may know the, the name Leach is now uh, morphed into Imagine Communications. And uh, he, my father was working far too hard, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of issues in the company that he was in at the time, which was Central Dynamics. And uh, Jim Leach said, you know, you really need to quit and start your own company. He said there is an image video in Canada. There's a Leach video. Why can't there be a Ross video as well? And so uh, Jim Leach named our company uh, right there on the spot. But my father said, well, you don't understand. I've got a young family. I have a job like everybody else. I have a big mortgage. I have no money. And, he, and Jim said, surely you must have something. He says, wait, you, you have that airplane, don't you? And my father said, what? Oh, no, I, I had that airplane. I, I, you know, there's some damage to it. I've, I've had, it. I've, I've been repairing it in the garage of my house. For the last two years, I just got it back in the air. And Jim said, sell it, someday you'll have two. And to this day, actually, my father has made a point. He's 87, he's still flying two different airplanes. Wow.
2: (laughs) So that's how he raised the money to start
0: Ross Video. That was the the only seed capital of the company. And in fact, uh, one one little known fact is, uh, you know, my mom says that she, we, we ate some dandelions out of the backyards. I think things were really, really tight uh, near the end. And we did run out of money. And uh, when dad's first salesperson, who is basically a, just a business partner, came by and said, John, I, I think things must be really, really tight right now. And my dad's saying to himself, yeah, I'm not going to get this project finished. And he said, I trust you. And I think that uh, you're going to deliver a great product to the customers. I'm going to pay you in advance and then they'll pay, pay me when, when, uh, when you deliver it. And that wow. got that over the hump. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's really nice that part of the origin story is, is not just this incredible story of an airplane, but also of kindness.
2: Yeah, totally. And you joined the company in 1991, I think. Yes. And then uh, took control of it in 2005. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to know, David. Uh, you know, were you kind of in love with technology from from as long ago as you can remember? From
0: you know when you could first walk. I think that happened in 1975 when my father brought home an InSight 8080 computer. It had, uh, I think, 16k of memory, which was amazing for its day because I think my dad. Paid like five thousand dollars for it in 1975, uh, and uh, and it ran on uh, with a teletype and paper tape and front pa- front panel switches. But I learned how to use it. Uh, he tried to teach my sister, uh, and I, I was always looking over the shoulder, going my, my my dad's shoulder. And I they thought I was too young, but uh, I turned out to be the uh, the programmer in the family. Uh, it, I, that led to interestingly, I think. Uh, a teacher pulled me out of class uh, a couple of years later and said, David, we want you to know that you're too young to uh, compete in science fairs. Uh, we'd heard a rumor uh, and I went, what's a science fair and what are you talking about? Uh, and they explained to what a science fair was and I thought, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I would enjoy doing that. And you can—you don't have to just do science, you can do engineering projects. Like I could write, do something with a computer and they said, sure. So I, uh, uh, the first time uh, I wrote... Um, uh, a real-time video game, and that would have been 1978. Uh, and uh, I won silver for Canada. Uh, and then I, I did another project, uh, which was um, uh, artificial intelligence, and I wore, won gold for Canada. And then I did another project on th- real-time 3D stereoscopic graphics, and that won another silver for Canada. One at junior, one at intermediate, and then later in senior. So I, I talked to that teacher later, and she said, you know, I knew you didn't. you didn't actually apply. That was my, my plan to get you interested in something.
2: That's, that's one of those great teachers that you never forget. That's absolutely brilliant. So I mean, it was clear then that, you know, you're always very, very talented around technology. But you know, if you look at your LinkedIn profile, you, you also really do stress your very early interest in business. And I'm curious about where that came from.
0: I, well, I, I went to university for computer engineering and uh, but I, I always knew that business was probably important, so I took as many business courses as, as I could. You know, micro and macroeconomics, uh, entrepreneurship, technical writing, business one hundred and one, uh, all sorts of things like that. But in the end, I always thought that I was going to work for Microsoft because uh, Bill Gates came once and talked a good game when I was in school, and uh, and I, I also uh, I always loved space stuff, and so I. I thought I was gonna work for NASA as well. And it's a, looking back now, what a, what a great decision not to, because they only seem to work with old tech as opposed to new tech. Um, but um, when my father, uh, my mother actually asked me back in the day, they said, what are you gonna do when you graduate? I said, well, I'm gonna work for one of those two companies. And she came back and my, my mom said, you've hurt your, your father terribly. I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, he always thought that he was, you're gonna work for him. And I said, well, why would you think that? He he told me that he would, not only was he never going to hire me, but I wasn't even in the will. And uh, she said, well, you didn't believe him, did you? I said, well, after about 20 times, yeah, I decided to make my own plans. She says, you should go back and talk to him again. Um, but it was, it was an interesting conversation back in, in the day um, because... It turned out that we had just laid off two thirds of the company in the 1990 recession. We uh, were down to about 25 people. We had basically analog switchers that were almost 10 years old in their design, uh, and Dad was one signature away from si- selling it all to Leach, uh, which is an interesting sort of 360 there. Um, and I went, oh, huh. you know, Dad was pretty down about the whole thing, and I said, you know, maybe there's something we can do about this together. Uh, and make make a go of it. And so he ripped up the documents with Leech and uh, and we didn't turn back. But within a few months of joining, he basically said, I'm gonna start working on this new product line, like, which is, became Ross Gear and then Open Gear. And uh, you've got the switchers, good luck. I'm 26 years old and all of a sudden I'm in charge of all, all Ross Video Switcher R&D. Wow. And I know this is a long story, but all of a sudden I realized I really need to up my game and learn about Business and management. So I read every single book I could because uh, I was terrified. I'm an engineer, uh, you know. You know, uh, business. They teach you a little bit, but not not enough. And i even had taken some courses. So I, I was even famous uh, for being the only person I know that competed in a half marathon race while also listening to a business book on audio.
2: <laughs> okay, so you know, it wasn't that your dad could see that you were a natural entrepreneur. It was actually that you. Kind of had to learn on the job. It was a matter of survival.
0: Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I started out by doing some things that I thought were maybe smart or right, and then you know, some dude quit, and I'd, I'd learn. Oh, that didn't work, and I'd try something else, and somebody would quit or get upset, and you know, and and fortunately, I learned from a lot of my mistakes.
2: Um, and, and and in that process, did you start to? evolve a set of principles that actually would would stay
0: with you would endure in the years ahead i think i learned a lot from my father for sure you know my father you could say is the spiritual father of the company as well as the founder uh he would tell me all sorts of things and and things like david you know we don't ship crap or something like that and he'd tell a story about this and we'd talk about business around the you know, the the dinner table from time to time, and so I'd understand some of the problems that, you know, engineering is easy and people are hard. Uh, that was a pretty, pretty much the basics. But I think in some ways things really turned around uh, about 1997, so I was about six years in. And we uh, we previously had one director of sales who uh, I, I looked up to and uh, and taught me a lot about business and things like that and pushed me to get out there. And he decided to move on to a different company, and I hired another uh, head of sales. And you know we just looked at qualifications and maybe not you know um, disposition. And over time, we started seeing behaviors that would work maybe in other companies, but just seemed totally foreign to the way that we had run the company before. And in nine, 1995, I moved up to Ottawa to start the Ottawa lab. So I uh, went up with, you know, myself, three people and a co-op student, and that's what became our auto operation, which now has like 600 people. Uh, and we got to a point where we knew we had to let this person go and it was painful because the person was working hard, uh, cared about the job, but was was doing things that upset customers, upset uh, our employees, upset us. And so the day we let him go, I went back to my, my office at home, looked out the window and said, what went wrong? How did we, how did something go so terribly wrong? And I was also angry because how could somebody take my company and start giving us, and me, such a bad reputation that was developing in the industry uh, with, with important customers? And I wrote down in 20 minutes the beginning of really what was the code of ethics. And I, I called it the Ross Video Code of Ethics. And it, and I, I probably almost put my fingers through the keyboard. Uh, I was so passionate about all the things that were the opposite of what this person had done. Uh, and we will do this, we will do this, made it very, very positive I threw and a number of things that I felt that were really meaningful things that my father had said over the years as well. And, I, and, and the reason I wrote this down was I realized I'm in Ottawa. These things are now happening in Iroquois, our other head office, and I'm not there to watch over it. And my father is, was often in the back doing engineering work and things like that. And so how do you guide people without being there and the bottom line was to write down what you believe in in a way that people will will remember it and uh and we we then took that document back around 2000 only about three years later and we split it into the code of ethics and the ross culture documents the Ross culture is a little less known, but it's still quite meaningful for how we treat each other in the company. And the code of ethics was how we treat everybody outside the company, and that hasn't changed since. Well, I guess in almost twenty-five years.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. So, twenty-five years ago is is when, in effect, you self-consciously um, developed a a Ross Video culture and a kind of identity as a company
0: that. Your employees would know and understand and and live by. Yeah. in In hindsight, I now view that as the most important document I ever wrote. Uh, it it's like the Constitution of Ross. It it's it's the the guiding principles of everything that we do. And what I found interesting. I, I mean, I don't know if you're ready to talk about it now, but. We made it super simple so that people could remember I didn't I I really didn't want it to look like it was written by committee. I wanted it to feel like more that it was written in a moment of stark honesty and and passion. And so uh, number one is really simple. We'll always act in the customer's best interest, you know, not the shareholders, not the employees first. You know, customers pay our bills. That's our philosophy. And, you know, we're going to treat them fabulously. and then I realized one of the things that is core is we will understand our customers requirements is, is number two. Uh, and, and so you can't just say, oh, we're going to do, go, do right by them. Well, what is that? You know, it's kind of like the platinum rule It's not, you know, do unto others as you'll have others do unto you. It's, it's like do unto others as to how they would would like to be treated. And and so understanding your customers' needs, uh, I think, are critical. And then there's a the famous one, number three, which is you know we will not ship crap, and we'll keep we'll keep our promises. We'll be great to work with. Um, so so these are all really famous ones in the industry, uh, and they can all you can put really fancy words beside them, like you know there's an orientation statement, and there's a quality statement, and there's a you know uh, an authority state. Yeah, there's a bunch of types of words that you could use, but it's it's easy to remember. And the last one uh, is, is one that's also frequently quoted, uh, which goes something like, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm doing it off the, off the top of my head, is in times of customer or company crisis, when there's no one around to make any required decisions, do what you know in your heart is right. And then it says in brackets, you may rent helicopters if necessary. And, and that's an empowerment statement. And you could say that in a very corporate way, but, Talking about telling people that they can do what in their heart is right, I think rings true. And then giving them the, the, the visual of renting helicopters if required, I think shows how far they're allowed to go. And so things like that, you know, become legendary inside and outside of the company and lead to some fabulous behaviors.
2: I'm I'm really intrigued to learn from you now that actually this was born out of A moment of jeopardy yes you and you know it 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 always struck me that there must be a burden to having a company that carries your own name because there's nowhere to hide if it goes wrong it's kind of you that's going wrong um so it really interests me to to learn that it was that jeopardy that motivated you but then what's so interesting is that you came up with uh, a Code of these nine statements, um, in response to that, like a, a a piece of personal frustration, but that then proved to work so well for so many other people. That's what's intriguing, that it wasn't it wasn't just for you. It was for everyone.
0: One of the things I like to say is, uh, everything I ever needed to know to work at Ross Video, I learned in kindergarten. You know to treat the other person nicely to share to to uh to not raise your voice don't run with scissors i don't know all those sorts of things and and i think for the most part the values that we put in the code of ethics are universal i think it spans culture it spans different people backgrounds age you know geography people just want to be treated well Uh, people want you to to be treated fairly uh, for you to pay attention to them uh, and, and to, uh, to not rip them off. Um, and it is when people read the code of ethics, I think they can expand on that in their minds of going, ah, this is the tone of the organization. This is the sort of place. And I can, they can fill in the, uh, the white space in between, I think as well, uh, cause they, they get a really clear idea of, you know, what David or management would want them to do because it's so simple
2: yeah yeah that that is really interesting but in in these days of of kpis and you know measuring everything some of these don't look at all easy to measure in fact the ones that you begin with you know we will always act in our customers best interest you know it's hard to put kpi on that isn't it
0: it is Maybe one of the beautiful things is that means it's really, really hard to copy. Huh.
2: That's the, that's a great point. I'll say a bit more about that.
0: Now, it's it's interesting that coming one of the things you you want as a as a uh, as a company is to have a competitive advantage and one that is uncomfortable for your competition to duplicate. And sometimes it's like well it would take us 20 years of research and development to do this or i'd have to go through a completely different dealer channel there's a lot of different ways to to protect yourself as a company but i for for another company in our industry to rip off the code of ethics would seem disingenuous uh uh so i it's they i'm sure they're gonna do it their own way but i i think it, it makes makes the company very, very special.
2: Yeah, yeah, because it, it is the Ross way, and that has to have us, you know, to some degree it has to be undefinable, just as uh, it does also have a framework. I can really see that. Okay, so you, you came up with this at a time when you had, how many employees roughly? Oh, wow, maybe 70. Uh, and today I think you have around 1,500, is that right? 1550 the last time I looked. <laughs> and during that period of growth over the last 25 years, uh, so what, got kind of a 20-fold increase in headcount and some, but you've also acquired a lot of companies. 19 or so, is that, is that right? Correct, 19. So just tell me a bit about what it's taken to maintain this code and this
0: culture through all that change and all that growth oh boy that's a big topic well there's a there's a number of things um let's let's start with acquisitions i have a rule that i don't know if i've heard anywhere else either and it's that we don't buy a company more than 10% of our size if if you look at our industry there's some notable examples of mergers and mergers and super mergers and things like that and from the outside in and from things i've hear those those can lead to some phenomenal culture wars uh and and also people like uh just trying to survive in because uh, you know when they're gonna get let half the sales force go uh what are you gonna do how are you gonna you know stand out and there's some positive and negative ways to make that happen. You can put a knife in the person's back beside you, and all of our Acquisitions, I think, have been good news stories. I buy small companies that I think are are gems. The next big thing. Sometimes I call them uh, occasionally Charlie Brown Christmas trees. That uh, they don't look so great when you start. You 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 wrap a blanket, you know, Schroeder's brat blanket around the base. You uh, you put some decorations on them. You give them love and feed them and water them, and all of a sudden you end up with wonderful companies. But th- there's no with these acquisitions. There's there's not too much upset. You know, we, we give them more as opposed to you know, slash and burn from the point of view of you know accounting savings. Uh, they are, they are almost, always adjacent. They, they rarely, rarely overlap with anything we already do. So they have their space. But the other thing we do is we usually put, tuck them underneath an existing Ross product manager and put them in, in parallel with another Ross team. So for example, if we already have robots and we buy another robot company, they become part of the robot team. Well, these cross connections and and top down connections, you know, uh, there's no doubt what the culture is. There's no doubt for these people to learn, you know, how, 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 uh, how we do things. And also, you know, there's, there's lots of time for course corrections over time. We sit there and go okay they're drifting over there what do we need to do let's pull it back in let's give it a nudge oh maybe that person actually doesn't fit in oh it's okay they self-selected out anyway fine uh things like that and and you end up bit by bit 10 percent by 10 percent growing the company in a way that it doesn't change and the other thing is you know these the things we believe in are pretty universal almost everybody you know wants to become part of a company that's like this. And, and I have to say that I've looked at it and well more than 50%, maybe 75% of all the companies I've ever bought was their idea. Oh, that's and interesting. Almost none of those companies were shopping it to anyone else. They, you know, I, I've heard many, many times, even at this past NEB quite a few times, David, my company's not for sale, but it is to Ross only Ross you know, I believe in my company, I love this company, but, you know, I'm getting older or I need, I need, I need some, 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 some rocket fuel for, you know, be part of a larger entity. You're the only entity that I would want to be part of. And. Is that happening
2: increasingly as, as your reputation as a good buyer? is yeah, building?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. More and more. And cause we're getting larger. So we touch at the edges of, of more and more companies we partner with more and more companies and they get to see not just what we have written on the wall, but they meet our people. And usually there's, they'll say things like, I've been waiting to find the idiots in your company (laughs) or something like that (laughs) because they're everywhere, but I've been working with your guys. I haven't found one yet. And, and I, you know, I find all, I love working with your people. They've been so enthusiastic. Everybody's so happy, you know, how do I be part of that and things. uh, So, but there must be a very thin
2: line between, that kind of warm and welcoming culture of, of the parent company kind of wrapping its arms around you. And oh my God, we've just been subsumed into the Ross cult. You know, oh my God, <laughs> these are the guys, you know. Uh he the guru wrote this wrote this code of ethics back in the day. Oh gosh, here's the session in which it's rammed down our throat and we all have to learn it. You know, how how do you how do you manage to make that process of kind of assimilation and acceptance of of an existing historic culture not feel like indoctrination
0: i think it's because the message is so easy i there's there's so many examples i can think of where if a company was run with a different tone than what we do you know maybe over promising and under delivering uh cutting quick quick and dirty deals uh, you know pushing underpaying employees, pushing them too hard uh, to unrealistic expectations they come into Ross and and I, my, my understanding you know is uh, or my, my position on this is those things all go away and you know we, we true up salaries make sure that they're treated fairly. Uh, I once had to pay uh, people two months of back wages or more. Uh, I mean because you know the owner is, was struggling uh, in in different ways and we, we we took over that that wasn't part of the negotiation we just did it and and so you buy a lot of goodwill by by treating the employees well uh, they become very very interested often they, they already know the Ross code of ethics you know uh, I, I remember once having a uh, a competitor of mine, uh in a in an honest moment because he was he was interviewing with me he says dave you made my life really difficult i said what do you mean well i was going into this this customer and my 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 company was not you know fulfilling its obligations and the customer took a piece of paper shoved it across the desk and said i expect to be treated like this and he said i looked down i said that's not my company that's the ross code of ethics and the customer said exactly There's one of your metrics, <laughs> um,
2: but uh, but seriously, and by the way, listeners, this is not a puff piece because I, I've seen some of the, um, the the customer experience research that shows that that Ross is incredibly popular and well liked amongst its customers. I mean, that really is a fact. I mean, David is is speaking the truth; it's not just his perception. But I, I am still interested, David, by by how you know that um, you're getting it right still year on year. I mean, is it is it because the business grows? Is it because your customers stay your customers? Is it through um, you know the the anecdotal informal feedback you you get? How is it that you know that that code's still working?
0: If you wanted to look at it from the employee point of view, one of the things we do is we uh, we have something called the EXM results and I, I filled it out uh, just this morning. Uh, everybody in the company is asked, uh, uh, was well, asked every week, but a quarter of the company is asked every week one question. And the question is, how likely are you to refer to somebody else, you know, to to work at Ross video uh, from zero to 10, 10 being most likely? And uh, then there's also anonymous feedback form on the bottom. And I read every single feedback and I, I every week I take a look at the numbers. And those numbers, you know, uh, can generate a net promoter score. Uh, and, you know, uh, we, we're consistently varying between, uh, say, 69% and uh, 79% net promoter score, which is, if you look at the number out of 10, it's basically like a, a 9.0 out of 10 on average across 1,550 people. That's a pretty good metric that our people are happy, and I, people can write anything they want. Uh, and I and what they write is best place I ever worked. I love my boss. I love my coworkers and developing great bonds. My onboarding was fantastic. Uh, I love the technology that I'm working on. I'm excited about what's what we're doing next. And then I'll have somebody who also says something like you know my manager didn't treat me well, I'm upset about something, I'm overworked. And, and so the nice thing is most of them are positive, but then the negative ones, we are all over. And even though they're anonymous, we can at least see that you know, whether, what geography or what area, and often we know who, who that possibly was because the nature of what they said, or they just signed their name to it, even though it could be anonymous. And then we we're all over trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this better? Um, so there's that. There's also Glassdoor uh, from an employee point of view. Um, I remember I, I shocked my head of HR when I sat down and I said, you know what? I've been reading all the, the comments, uh, positive and negative Glassdoor, and I, I wrote a response to every single one of them. <laughs> and, and she said, what? Nobody does that. No, why would a CEO do that? How would you do that without HR approval and everything else? I said, well, I'm, I'm just speaking from the heart and they're all pretty easy to answer. Uh, and I couldn't left the, let, let these comments be unanswered. You know, there, there's two sides and I'm not being defensive. I just want to understand and explain things. And uh, and so on Glassdoor, we we have absolutely the, the highest uh, numbers of, of uh, you know, the comments are, are the best in the industry as well. So it's another metric on top of, say, the Devoncroft metrics that we use. So there's a lot of ways I can check what's going on uh, with the employees and and what we do about it uh of course anybody can email me or find me as well i also do um uh coffee with dave and lunch with dave where i'll meet with four or five people you know um once or twice a week uh throughout the organization usually new people but also some people from all over and sometimes i'll do it in the evening if i want to catch the guys in australia or something like that or or in europe and uh then we just chat about whatever they want to talk about uh, and answer any question they have uh, for usually half an hour or more. And that gives me a really good pulse as well. Real human anecdotes is worth it. But I wonder if this
2: does bring another kind of pressure. We talked earlier about the pressure of the company bearing your name, but there's, Hmm. there's surely an extraordinary pressure when you have carried your workforce through so much, you know, through so much industry change and through so much social and economic change. Um, And the company goes on growing year after year after year. You must get to a point where be like in a year like this, where another recession is announced, your workforce kind of look at you and they're like, but we're going to be okay, aren't we? Because, you know, you always have been. And, And does it, does it actually end up putting more and more pressure on you to keep growing the company and keep it successful hmm. or them? then.
0: Well, that's interesting. You know, one, one of the things that having a culture like that, that's so strong, it works in both directions. Uh, you know, you could say that all the employees have a pretty clear idea of what I expect from them, but as a result, cause I wrote it down. I am held accountable to those exact same things from them up to me. And I think without that, it's very easy for a CEO to go, well, times are tough. Everybody, we're gonna cut your wages. We're gonna fire a bunch of people. We're gonna to get tough. We're gonna to put a new, new, new regime in because this is the new times or whatever else, and we, we have to do it. And when you have that relationship and, and, and an expectation from your team, it, it's a lot easier to just make decisions that are in line with everything you've done before. And the advice I get from my HR and all my managers and even you know employees that are talking to me, all aligns. So the path forward often is exceptionally clear. It's not hard, it's easier. Um, when for an example is when the pandemic came out, uh, um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but you know, uh, we immediately say shut down the factory for two weeks because we knew we didn't know how safe it was and we wanted to protect our people. And of course, two weeks, that's half a month's production. Yeah. The numbers were not good that month, um, but we protected our people. We we figured out how to put them into two 12 hour shifts, working three hours, three days in a, grou- in a group so that if one shift got sick, the other shift didn't catch it. They never met. Um, and then we, uh, we also got scared because Sales that first month or so dropped drastically. All business stopped in the world. It felt like, and and we didn't know what was going to happen next. So um, we came up with an idea that was um, lifeboat, Ross. And I said, you know what? We're going to take care of everybody. We're not going to let anybody go in this period. And but sales are down. We need everybody to take a eighty percent a pay cut to 80% of their salary. So 20% immediately, myself included, everybody's gonna get 20% off. And uh, But I wanna be fair and there is less work, except in R&D and sales and marketing, where in theory there's more, but still we only expect you to work four days a week. I don't expect you to work anymore. Your hourly wage is still your hourly wage. And everybody was relieved and happy and they trusted us that we were there taking care of them and not taking advantage of them. A little while after that, things started to pick up and people did some amazing smart things to, to make the business go better. So we, uh, we went back to 100 percent and morale went up again. It's kind of funny. You, 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 morale went up when, uh, when you cut people's wages and then when you gave them their hours back, morale goes up again. It was, a, it, was a, it was really interesting. And then later in the year, we realized with some government assistance and things like that, we're going to do really well. And we're an open book company. We, every, all of our employees see all of our metrics, all of our profits, the top line, everything. And uh, and we have 400 employee shareholders as well. We're an ESOP company now. So we're a family and employee owned company. So I said, I can't hide the fact that we've made a ridiculous amount of money this year. Or it looks like we're going to, we're still about four months away, but the trend is clear. So before even the end of the year, I, I went back and I, I made everyone whole. I said, you know what? Some of you may have worked five days a week. Some of you didn't. I don't care. Everybody lost out on some money. We're going to give everybody all those missed days pay right now. So we paid out something like $4 million to the employees. Totally unexpected. That that went pretty far. Went pretty, that, that went well for us as well. So as we're heading into recession now, uh, I don't think people are expecting us to, to change who we are. We've already been through a recession, which was COVID.
2: But you you survived that experience and ended up you know, doing really well as a company because you continued to make uh, products and deliver services that, that, that your customers valued. That remains always needing to be the case, doesn't it, that you know through this next recession, you still have to go on performing in the fundamentals of, of your business. And and what intrigues me there is that really, I mean, Ross video should be a dinosaur, shouldn't it? I mean, you know, <laughs> began in 75, you know, where we wouldn't even recognize the days of broadcasting. Then you have factories, you have factories that make actual hardware things, you know, come off an assembly line, so to speak. You know, you're supposed to be the past and yet you're absolutely not. You're managing to keep growing year on year into the future. And again, without kind of going into the obviously there's there's a there's a lot of detail there about your r and d and and you 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 know your your intelligence about where you want to put your emphasis and which companies to buy and so forth. but once more the kind of principle level what is it that you draw on to ensure that you always stay relevant? you don't get too far ahead of yourself so you don't overinvest in a, in a trend that then collapses and you don't underinvest in what in fact is going to be significant development for the future what what guides you in that
0: well there used to be the day that my father was the one that knew everything about everything and if if you didn't know just ask my dad uh, and he'd tell you what to do uh, as the company got bigger that's not sustainable so one of the goals is to have Fabulous product managers who is in charge of either a production workflow software or, or uh, experts in our robotic systems. Uh, another We have other ones in charge of production switches and servers and other ones, about our connectivity our groups and so forth. And those people uh, are specifically chosen for being exactly the right people to run that section of the business and so they they are very well connected to the technology and to the customer they're very passionate about what they do they're excellent communicators and uh, sometimes they can be a little annoying uh, because they're right they know it and they push hard uh, and i love that about them so there's all this knowledge and enthusiasm with all, and with good business people as well where there's so many bubbling ideas if you ask our CFO, you'll roll his eyes almost like if there's one thing about Ross video that we don't have to worry about is ideas. And when I've got, you know, 30 great ideas coming out of every single one of those product managers coming out of their teams where they're all working together, our job is to choose the top 50% of those ideas. And then across all those different product lines, guess what? They're, all pretty much going to be great ideas going into the future and you know they're they're just selling them up to us and and also have a lot of freedom to do what they need to do Um, the other thing is if we make a mistake if we choose if we if you know we're too early or late into 2110 or cloud or something like that my robot business doesn't care it's going to keep growing and doing the right thing the uh the the production workflow business you know in some ways is video format live video format agnostic as well you know overdrive controls a show controls the show it's it's not about that but it's part of our industry and then if I miss mess up on those but we get it exactly right on the right video format saying you know what 12 gig SDI is going to be here longer than anybody knew and we're going to be at the forefront of that then that's going to pay for everything else so we call it lots of legs under the table uh, and it, it adds a lot of stability for us to uh, make up for mistakes that happen. You know, I, I, I tell a story to all of our product managers. Uh, it's a legend of Microsoft that there is a moment where DOS was all their money so maybe DOS is where they should be investing but on the other hand people said that you know well they make the applications too maybe they shouldn't have the operating system so IBM has OS2 maybe they should go with that and then there's this thing with Apple's doing it seems early days but maybe they should have something that, like windows that should should go after that and so what did they do in that decision point they actually did all three yeah. and when it became clear that windows was the, the winner of the future they dropped work on the other two and then look like they they had they could read the future or in reality they just hedged their bets and it turns out that unlike roulette the world isn't necessarily you know against you uh that you can in business you can you can bet on all three uh, and well, so well I
2: think number seven uh david is uh we will treat the competition with respect i notice and then number eight is we will cooperate with and help other friendly companies. Yeah. So, so for you, actually being open and being cooperative is part of your competitive advantage.
0: Oh, absolutely. We won an Emmy for it. So, so when we uh, when we launched Open Gear, I mean, one of our problems is <laughs> we basically had something called you know Ross Gear Digital or something like that, and and uh, and we had four DAs. How are we so? how were we supposed to compete with, you know, established companies like Miranda and Grass Valley and the rest and Everts that had full HD product lines already, we were dead. Well, maybe not so dead. Uh, We found, we realized that there's other friendly companies that were also sort of competitive companies because they could be making whatever we're making. And we said, you know, we're all in the same boat here. We need to catch up. Why don't we work together and fill out the portfolio really fast and give our customers choice acting in the customer's best interest. And we would be the only open portfolio, so we have a differentiator in the entire industry. And I mean, it's now probably the biggest um, glue line, you could sort of say, in the entire industry. Uh, I I think it's worked very, very well. The other thing is there's been a lot of layoffs with a lot of our competitors right now because we've been trying very very hard this is one of the hardest ones to do is to treat the competition with respect because you want to be competitive at the same time but we do hold back and i think it helps um that i don't think we're too hated in the industry even by the competition so so those people say i've always been watching you i've had my current job but when i was out or and i realized that maybe it was time for me to leave this company Ross was my, my desired destination as opposed to the company that I was taught to view as an evil competitor or something like that. So it worked extremely well for hiring. Uh, and then finally, both of those sides of things um, worked really well for acquisitions because you know we, we actually gave a lot of smaller companies or adjacent companies a leg up along the way when we didn't have to. And uh, it goes a long way in the end. There's karma in this industry.
2: Now, there's just one other thing I want to ask you about regarding um, your kind of your principles and your your philosophy, and it's it's around um, the company's involvement in um, in social responsibility, in you know community work, in charity work. Ross is building quite a reputation around environmental sustainability, for which you're beginning to win awards. Um, and I, I watched a video that you recorded a couple of years ago when Ross became the first Canadian compassionate company, which is a lovely thing, uh, worth people looking up, uh, because actually this is a, a program that's been started by a hospice association, I believe, isn't it? In mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but you, you spoke very eloquently in that video about the fact that engagement in, in causes like this do have to carry business benefit, as well as being about just doing the right thing. Um, and I admired you, by the way, for being open about that, expressing the fact that, you know, the two things have to go hand in hand. But again, how do you, how do you go about thinking about that and about the decisions that you feel the company should make that are the really effective places for you to, to engage socially and and to show your your social commitment as, as well as
0: getting a business benefit out of it? Let's think about, let's think about the workforce today, especially the workforce that, that we have in our industry. We have professional, ex, exceptional professional salespeople. We have product managers that are experts in industries. We have, we have fantastic hardware and software developers and development teams and, and so on. They can work anywhere. If they, especially in today's employment situation, there's millions of jobs, you know, that are unfilled everywhere. So I I actually gave a talk, I don't know how many years ago now, but, uh, and then I did a LinkedIn post recently on you should treat your employees like they're volunteers. And because effectively they are. I think maybe back there was an idea in the '60s or '70s or something like that that you know people were terrified of losing their jobs and they will do anything for the income and you could you can abuse them as much as they want but as long as you give them a paycheck they'll they'll do whatever you ask and that that time is long long gone uh, but the management thinking of that still persists in in a lot of companies that they can be abusive towards their people and and think that they're going to stick around and sometimes they do out of momentum and their and fear, but uh, are you going to get the best out of those people? You know, when, when we have a, uh, a commissioner that goes into uh, a customer's location and they show up and sometimes, you know, that uh, some cables need to be soldered, some wires need to be pulled from the roof and a third party piece of equipment from your competition has to be commissioned first, but there's only a few things that need to be done. You can have an employee sat there and says, well, call me when you're ready. I'll go back to my hotel room or I'll go home or, well, I I might as well help you out. I think I can help you. And uh, I wasn't hired, in to do this, but it seems to be the right thing to do. And by the way, it looks like we're going to be here till 11 at night because everybody's coming in tomorrow morning for training. So let's do that. That that sort of behavior is only done when that person feels like they're not being taken advantage of and that they're being done done right by. And then that that gets passed on to the customer. The customer sees that and says, that is the best I've ever been treated as a customer. I, I want to buy more from this company. Uh, and and so the cycle just goes on and on. I, I can't tell you how many times a customer said, if you made product X that you don't make today, I'd buy it from you. What a difference from when we're a you know 25 person company when they wouldn't even buy what we did make. <laughs> And yeah. you had to argue for for, for weeks just to, yeah. to get attention, um, and it's all about developing a reputation. That reputation is from people, not from marketing. It's from real experiences. So if if you treat people well, uh, whether it's the compassionate care, whether it's uh, the way you know the. Paying them back after in the in the pandemic after they've given something for you uh, it, in in some ways it's only fairness that you're paying them back you would if somebody did that for you as a as a private individual you probably would have given them the twenty bucks or something like that that you felt you owed them because they helped you out yeah. why don't we do that more with people yeah, yeah. so yeah. so I think I think it totally works for business as well so that means that when you
2: announced recently that you have an intention to IPO in the next couple of years. So it sounds like the 50th anniversary of Ross Video might, might well coincide with an IPO. Um, didn't that create
0: shockwaves through your workforce? No. Um, and I'll tell you why, because um, it, it wasn't a surprise. Um, one of the things that any good company does is they talk about succession issues. What happens if this person quits or this person gets promoted? How are you going to refill the position from behind? And of course, one of the things that even your board of directors asks about, as well as every employee, what happens if David Ross gets hit by a bus? And uh, and so I have to think about these things. And I didn't think about it as much, maybe, when I was in my my 30, my 20s, my 30s. And my 40s and now i'm into my 50s we're still working at the same crazy company uh, and um when i turned 50 i sat there and said okay now i got to start thinking about this more seriously because i'm i'm not getting any younger i totally like i'm i was writing doing half iron man and when i was 50 so i wasn't worried about my health but um i did have to answer that question and so then you think about the succession of Ross video and what are my options? So let's talk about that a little bit first. Uh, so my options are do nothing uh, as an engineer. I call that the, the null set uh, and, and that is um, not really nice. And it doesn't really answer the question the, the second thing I could do is I could sell to a competitor and I, and for a company like Ross, I'm not quitting. So I'd have to work for that competitive competitor for decades, maybe. Well, that doesn't sound like any fun. I remember talking to one company who said they wanted to buy me and they said, oh, it wouldn't be so bad. You just come to me for every, you just come to us for every decision. I was like, well, that's, that's not what I wanted to do. I don't need that now. Um, so, and, and then they that, that company actually also said, by the way, we've got manufacturing, so we'd shut yours down, which is in my hometown. Uh, with hundreds of people that I know and trust me. Uh, And then by the way, there's a couple of other product lines that overlap. So we'd keep ours and we think our salespeople are better and we don't need your back office people. And probably we don't need your salespeople and so on. And it's like, (laughs) I said, you're the worst salesperson in the world to this person. But I thought it was a great wake up call for what it it could be like for me to sell to Ross or to sell Ross to some other company. Um, So I didn't like that. So what's my other thing? Because I have, you know, the board of directors is saying, what's the succession plan? And, it, and it's, in my case, it's not my position, it's ownership. So the other one is private equity. Well, well that works just lovely in our industry, doesn't it? So, so, uh, so with private equity, again, you know, you end up with somebody who bought you because they think that you're doing something interesting that they want they want to put their mark on you they want to change your direction well i like our direction uh you know you should go all software is is one of the current thoughts well i like our manufacturing i think we're doing just fine thank you um and uh you know we should slim you down we should bulk you up we should put you in a loss we should load you up with debt who knows all these things by the way seven years from now we're going to sell you to somebody else and you don't have any say And in the process of that, of course, we're going to make you look good. We're going to put some lipstick on you. we are going to let half your R&D and and customer support people go and let the next people find out that the company's hollow. But we, we made our money. And I'm like, and I'm still going to work here? Well, that's not going to work. What do I have left? There is nothing left to solve the question except going public. So one of the interesting things is most companies that go public in our industry are actually already owned by private equity or investors or something like that, or they're, they're, they're mired in debt. Uh, and, uh, and so they, they lose control of their companies. I, I still own uh, 80% of, of the company at Ross and the employees own the other 20. Um, if we go public, I still have a commanding control position. That is highly unusual as as a public company, especially one that's 50 years old, especially one of our size that I expect to to pass through the 400 million mark this this coming year. So that gives me new options. And one of the things that I, I learned as well along the way is something called super voting shares, the dual share structure concept. So uh, a few years ago, uh, with unanimous shareholder support, with myself and all 400 shareholders, not a single person disagreed, we said that everybody that has one vote now has 101 votes. And because we added preference preference shares, and it only happened for that one moment in time, and you can't sell them. And if you sell your your common stock, your preference shares go poof, and they disappear. So basically, as long as I stick around, I've got 101 votes to everybody's new votes coming in even money coming into the company and I have had conversations with investment bankers and they suddenly go oh well you know that super voting thing that's going to go because it's not good governance and I said oh that's interesting you know uh, Bombardier has that and uh, so does uh, Rogers and so does Chorus and most of our competitors I I could mean I I came up the list of 30 well-known Canadian family-owned companies that have exactly this and I said you know have you read the studies that show that Uh, founder-led companies with super voting structures outperform the the stock market absolutely consistently. And it's because they have a long-term view instead of a short-term view, and they have a vision and a passion. And they went, oh, that's true. And I said, by the way, you know, with 80%, do you care if I have super voting shares anyway? And they said, actually, it makes no difference whatsoever. So I said, great, I can't be fired. And if I can't be fired, I'm going to run the company as absolutely closely to what, what I believe in made this company great that I did before and I said so what company do you want to buy anyway do you want to buy the company that's grown 17% a year every single year with no down year for 31 straight years totally internally financed or something else (laughs) because I don't know what that other thing is but it's going to be whatever you think is good governance that somebody else is going to jump on our board and just come up with an idea of the day saying we should now go 100% into the metaverse for example okay uh (laughs) <laughs> so, so I think I, I've, I've worked out a pretty compelling argument, and I, I keep asking questions like, "So, what happens if I don't care about quarterly results? What happens if I do decide I want to give my employees a four million dollar bonus because they did the right thing? Am I going to get have i Have I oppressed any any shareholders? By the way, I'm the majority shareholders. I'm still the shareholder. And so, I, the way I view it with the um, with the bankers that I'm talking to is I'm kind of positioning it as we've got a great thing going. I'm allowing you to participate. Just like my, my employees, I'm not asking for somebody to run my company and you can't anyway. So let's not even talk about that, but I think it's a great investment opportunity. How'd you like to give us some rocket fuel?
2: Well, I think all those listeners who've been enjoying, uh, Four seasons of succession will be very disappointed by you, David.
0: I I watched the first first few few episodes of that, and I started yelling at the television. And I, I said, told my wife, I can't watch this. These guys are idiots. It just, I would never run a company that way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I must say, um, talking to you is a, is a glorious antidote uh, for those that of us that kind of need kind of flushing out with some of the bad karma that's come to us through watching that uh, that particular um, series we must we must end now but um, as we do I have I have to ask you this because we've of course been focusing on the successes and um, the things that you've thought long and hard about that have enabled you to build this company uh, but if I put you on the spot and said what, in your years as a business leader, do you think was your biggest mistake? What's the thing you've got most wrong?
0: If I did things wrong, I did them wrong when I was younger, and those wrong things led to us doing things right. so even mistakes are they wrong or as long as you you have uh, you you learn. I mean, I, I, when I was younger, I was more of an engineer and less of a social engineering type person um, uh, and more driven. So, you know, I, uh, I probably made mistakes and I apologize to all of those people where I was too harsh, asked for too much, didn't pay enough, things like that. Uh, if I could have been more the company that we are today, back then, we probably would have done even better. It took me time uh, to to evolve personally uh, into somebody who runs a company like we have today. I probably, in some cases, made hiring decisions. They they say they say hire for skills and fire for behavior. I probably didn't hire for behavior enough in certain instances, and I put some of my people through harder times as a result of that. Uh, so I feel badly for for those moments. But again, there are fabulous learning opportunities as a manager, as long as we just didn't keep doing that. And I probably made mistakes as well, business wise, uh, that I didn't hire as many salespeople as I as I could have. Back in the day, I was a little little too focused on R&D, feeling like I'll sell it when my product's just a little bit better. You know, And you you had this inferiority complex and uh, and learning that uh, a really professional sales force can do wonders for a company. So maybe those are some of the flavors of some of those things.
2: And I think that's really good and really helpful because you're, you're painting a picture of yourself as somebody who has over time become softer, more reflective, more aware, gained a broader view, which is in contrast to the kind of received view of people as they get older, which is that they get more entrenched, they just start to demand that people do things the way that they did them, that was successful for them. So uh, I like to think that there's some passing words of, of, of wisdom at the end of this. this is a, it's going to be very helpful for a lot of people to hear that. So, well, Thank you very much. David Ross, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I'm really grateful to you for giving us your time.
0: Thanks for having us. I hope people listen to this. <laughs>
1: That was the DPP's Mark Harrison in conversation with Ross Video CEO, David Ross. Thank you very much for listening and make sure you are subscribed to the DPP podcast so that it materializes in your feeds at the earliest opportunity. And I do hope you will join us for upcoming episodes from experts and industry leaders in media, tech, entertainment and broadcasting.